Welcome to the Millennial Recruiter Podcast, the podcast for forward-thinking recruiters. On this episode, I interview Mike Ames. Mike has successfully built and sold two recruitment agencies, selling software knowledge uh, to Modis, which is now acquired by uh, the ADECO Group, and then selling Crimson to the Harvey Nash Group. So Mike is going to share a lot of his secrets in terms of what enabled him to build and scale two mega successful recruitment businesses. I really hope you enjoy this episode. And as always, if you do enjoy it, it'd be awesome if you could leave me a review at the end. Thank you so much and enjoy. Mike, welcome to the Millennial Recruiter Podcast. It's great to have you on the show this morning. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. And looking through your, your background, I, I've been really excited about this show. So can you tell us a bit about your background within the recruitment industry? No pressure there then, Ben. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I started a long time ago, 88 actually. I'd been in IT as a contractor uh, in the 80s. And the guy I used to work for said to me one day, do you know what? I reckon you could do this. And I was just keen for a change. So I took a 50% pay drop, which is what, you know, contracting in those days, was paid well and uh, junior recruitment positions weren't paid well, but I took it. And then within six months, we left there and set up our own business. That was in April 89, which coincidentally was also the official beginning of that particular early 90s recession. So that was good timing. And then we ran that until 98 and I sold it to Modis uh, International. Um, stayed there for two years of my three and then bummed around a bit and then started another business with a couple of guys um, who who worked for me in SK Software Knowledge was the name of the business and we started Crimson. Have I got just a moment to tell you a little story about that? Would you mind? Definitely, ever, so, ever so quick. Would you mind? So <clears throat> I was going out of my uh, mind and I hadn't worked and I, you know, I'd never been more wealthy in my life. I just was going down the slippery slope. I had to have cancelling. I'm not even joking. I was so depressed. Anyway, the two guys who used to work for me came to see me and I, I kind of thought I knew what they were coming for. So they came to the house and Mrs. Ames had given me some very strict instructions. Get a job, Michael, get a job. Right. All right. then. And so they're saying, well, we're going to start this thing up and we want you to be part of it. And I'm playing it cool. You know, yeah. Inside I'm fist pumping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to get this. And I'm sort of thinking, well, I'll play it cool. See how it all works out. So at the end of their little speech, my wife said, excellent. He can start Monday. I'll get the champagne. And that was me in my second recruitment company. <laughs> I was away. And we, we ran that for longer. I didn't stay there. I became a sleeping partner in 2010. And then we sold that to Harvey Nash in 2017. And what, what are you doing now, Mike? Uh, I run a growth consultancy predominantly for recruiters. So I, I'm not going to, I know you're not here to talk about me. So I'll very quickly get this out of the way. I work with micro and SME recruitment firms predominantly, and there's something wrong in their business that they think normally they're not growing enough, making enough money, or it's not scalable. Those are the three things really. And what I do is help them to fix whatever problem it is and give them what they want from their business, which is normally more, more money, a better lifestyle, or to become financially independent, which is, I suppose, the dream of all of us, isn't it? It, it certainly is. And the reason why I wanted to ask that is because already I can tell, like, from our conversations, the amount of value you gave me in 20 minutes. I just really want to signpost people to speak to you. Like, oh, thank you. Because it, it seems as well from our conversations that you're really passionate about the recruitment industry. Like, how have you kept passionate about it, considering that you've been involved for 30 years? I, I, think, that, I think that the recruitment part is 
it's just happenstance really it's just i like business i like people i like to build things some years ago i had my needs analysis done which is a really interesting process they figure out the internal drivers that you've always had all your life and those drivers come out in different ways depending on how old you are and what you're doing I had mine done and i need to be in a place of discovery so I need to be doing something new all the time, learning things, trying different things. I need to be taking risks, not necessarily massive ones. I don't need to go gambling or skydiving or anything, but I need to have some consequence of failure, I suppose, was, was how it was put to me. I need to be on a journey. I need to have been somewhere, you know, going to be somewhere and going somewhere. And if you add all of these things up, recruitment is an awesome backdrop to all of that. All of those things, all of those things matter. And I just love seeing people get better and get what they want out of their business. It's awesome. Really love it. Fantastic. And I think one, one thing that we were talking about beforehand was about the word recruitment consultants. Now, something you said almost really passionately about sometimes nowadays recruitment has almost become such a commodity that, that they've lost the consultancy part. Can you, can you tell me a bit more about your, your views on that, Mike? Sure. When I started, um, the, on, uh, the company I first, first went to work for was quite a small company, about 150 contractors out, I think, in Coventry. <clears throat> Ended up being owned by Spring, who were strangely bought by Deco, which is a weird way, isn't it? As Modus were. Anyway, so uh, I went to work there, and first day, uh, it kind of gets settled in everything. And then I went to see the MD. That's a big thing. Everyone did. So we went to see him. And he gives me some, some spiel. All I remember is he said, you're a professional now, like I wasn't before when I was in IT. Ah, fair cop. But you're a professional now, and um, we, like a lawyer or an accountant, so people will rely upon you to get the right person for the right money in the right time, and you better not let them down. And so I always viewed my title as recruitment consultant more on the consultant than the recruitment. I always viewed it that way, and my job was to make my clients happy, to get them the right people, really, at the, at the right time for the right money. And I think now it's – it's. I mean, there's still people, of course, who are like that. Obviously, there are, but – I think that the, a lot of people just class themselves as recruiters now and have lost the consultant. But actually, where the money is and where the security is and where the growth is, is in the consultant, not the recruiter, if you ask my opinion. Yeah, no, I actually, I, I massively agree with you on that. I think having delivered training for some of the best agencies in the world and within my own business is something that I strive for both myself and my team to be. I think being a consultant allows you to create a much stronger value proposition to your clients and your candidates. Like for you, what, what would you say makes someone a consultant within this industry? Well, number one that we all know, you, you would have taught people this, Ben, is to listen more than anything else. <clears throat> and listen, and at my first boss, who ended up my first business partner, Mike Sparks, he used to say, your job's not done until your client's happy. It doesn't matter whether you've done what's in the contract or you've ticked all the boxes. I don't care. If the client's not happy, your job's not done. And I think if you put those two things together, somebody who listens to try and understand exactly what somebody wants and then doesn't stop until they get that thing, I think you're on the way to consultancy. Added to that, it's a weird thing because we think – I was lucky because at a couple of – or three instances in my career, I've been a client, a user of agencies, if you will. And it's funny, you learn so much. I mean, I think that everybody that starts a new starter should, should bribe one of their clients to let that new starter go and work in the resource department of the clients for about a month. And it will completely change the way in which they do recruitment. I'm not even joking. Yeah. Well, I was very lucky to see how people worked and how they, how they got on. 
And, and I think a lot of people are just obsessed with the money, really. It's like, I'm not really listening to you. I don't really care about you. I want the job and I'm going to go and do it and get some money. That's what I really want. And I get that. You know, I'm not stupid. I understand. Mm. But that's not as a client what I want to hear. Mm. It's like having a best mate and they only ring you up if they want something from you. It's like, well, it gets a bit wearing after a while. Mm. What you actually want is to add value, listen, try and understand what it is that you want. Then by hook or by crook, I'll give it to you. And hopefully I'll make some money as well. Mm. But that isn't the primary motivator for me because I know the money comes if I do a great job as it always does definitely yeah. My, money is the byproduct of doing the right things consistently again and again and again and obviously i like we, we were talking about it before recruitment is a competitive industry but as you said when we were speaking there's forty thousand recruitment agencies in the uk Twenty thousand of them will be one-man bands or very very early stage startups what, what do you think causes an individual or a group of individuals to be able to build a long-term successful business in the way that you have? Um, <clears throat> well, that's actually, um, I mean, this podcast is about five hours long, isn't it? Because that's <laughs> how long I'm going to need. No, no, I can summarize it down a little bit. But um, I think scalability is, is an interesting concept because the definition of scalability means um, n- not no important aspect of your business depends upon a specific individual for its success right that's scalability so as soon as you get to a stage where the the success of a particular part of it say winning new clients say depends upon a person whether that's the owner or someone else that business isn't scalable because sooner or later that person will become saturated and then they can't grow anymore it's happened to me in the past so i know i've been through this experience or if they leave or get run over by a bus you know or in, in my case my first business partner, the one that I had worked for, was killed in a car accident 18 months into our first business, which was horrendous, really, and all sorts of levels. But he was the talent. He knew everything. Mm. Luckily, we managed to kind of pull through that. But had we not been able to do that, that was game over because he was in charge of you know the, the clients, really. So I think being able to have a business which doesn't depend upon its success for key people any more than it has to is the real centerpiece for scalability because as soon as you get out of that then you know you you can change having said that um have you heard the expression you can't make a butterfly by making a caterpillar bigger right so you have to go through that chrysalis stage you have to go through a stage where you reorganize a business and one of the reasons in order to grow one of the reasons that businesses don't really grow is they don't reorganize they try and make the caterpillar bigger and it can't be it can only reach a certain size and then it stops it's that uh, the, the target for for recruitment companies is sort of 250 bit to 450 bit people go into that can never get out because they won't reorganize they won't restructure to move to that next level and i think um, i was very lucky because i i well let's say lucky you know i nearly had a nervous breakdown and nearly broke it with my wife and lost my children but apart from that i was incredibly lucky i think to go through a period where am i am i speaking too much you need to this is just a little story as well it's true absolutely true but, but it's scalability which is why i want to talk about it so so mike had died i didn't know what i was doing 18 months before i've been literally writing programs to make money for the business yeah. so i didn't know what i was doing i did what I, I always do when I'm out of my depth, I just threw hours at it. So I was regularly doing 60 or 70 hour weeks in those days. Massive strain, but we're getting through it, we're fine. And then I get, find my wind and I kind of understand how this 
works and and that's okay so we when mike died i think we we had nearly a million turnover i think and then i managed to get it to about four and a half million i suppose and then three things happened in a very short space of time all related to scale <clears throat> excuse me firstly my business partner came to me and said uh, andrew because there were three of us originally he was a finance guy and he said look um he said we stopped growing and i kind of knew that anyway because i've seen the figures he said i don't really know what we need to do about this and the problem was me really i mean that's what he was trying to say whereas i'd been a driver behind the business as so many small businesses are when they get someone that can sell it kind of powers the business forward well now i was saturated you could only work 60 hour weeks for so long you know before your head goes right so we weren't going anymore and i hadn't changed at all it was still the my game show it's all about me you know and i wouldn't hear anything from anybody because i'm the bsd you know, this is the way it's going to be around here. It's just nonsense. I'm embarrassed to even tell you that now, right? The second thing that happened about the same kind of time was, have you ever come home from work of a night time, particularly on a Friday night, and been really wired, you know, really stressed out, right? You've been like that, yeah. So so I drive I drive home, and I live quite a way away from where we were based at the time. And I thought, you know, I just want to just have a bottle of wine. Actually, actually I just want a bucket of wine, never had a bottle. Give me some wine and some television and that'd be great for me but i came around the corner i could see my house <clears throat> excuse me and my wife had kept the children up for me because i hadn't seen them all week the last thing i wanted was uh, three small children leaping over me no didn't want that so i waited until their lights went on upstairs i mean how can a father do this i waited i waited a bit longer then i went in and i opened the door and they were shouting dad dad they're obviously awake waiting for me to come in that was the trigger point, just collapsed completely. In fact, as I'm telling you this, I'm just getting a little bit emotional, actually. Of course, of course. Right? So, uh, you know, I, I just broke down. And it was just like a huge, I had a mini breakdown, I think. <clears throat> Couldn't go on the way I was. My wife said, look, this has got to stop, you know. You know, it's got to change else. I'm off and blah, 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 and all this sort of stuff. And I'm going through all of this. And then uh, the following week, and it definitely was the following week. My business partner came to me. He got this little piece of paper, this little flyer. And he said, oh, look at this. Why don't we go on this? Because he knew I was the problem, right? He knew that. And in the past, no chance am I going in on a seminar. I don't think so. I know how I can do this, right? It's a business growth seminar. And I said, yeah, let's go. And he's seen his little face. It's, oh, my God, he's, he's going to a seminar. He's going to listen to somebody else. So I went, and it was it was amazing. So a guy standing up talking about the problems with non-scalable businesses. He's describing my life. Yeah. A lack of growth, people being, you know, a little bit disgruntled, um, money not as plentiful as it was, um, dissatisfied clients, which we'd never had before. Service levels drop if you don't scale properly. And, uh, and this was like a horrendous thing. And then he says, well, you, if you like that, you're not scalable. And then they began to talk about scale. It was, he didn't say the word scalable, actually, use something else, but, but he, he, that's essentially what he was saying. And at the end of it, it was run by the government, this thing, and they wanted you to take a consultant and they would pay two thirds of the consultant's rate. So mm. I was the first one up at the front and the guy that ran it, his name was Don Black. I remember him smoking the cigarette because you could do that in those days. He was sitting there smoking his fag. And he said, yes, I said, I want in. I want one of them. And four weeks later, we had Anne-Marie who started with us and she was the first step to scalability because she taught me the principles of scalability in the business. Not I've never forgot them ever, you know. And I guess you want me to tell you what those I, principles I, are. Certainly, do, Mark. I certainly do. <laughs> You can see I'm engraced in this conversation well, myself. I, I think that's about it. So I'll see you all next episode. No, no, no. I won't. I won't do that. So, okay. So, 
first thing, uh, and again, I'm going to paraphrase over 18 months work that she did with us, but it's you're, you're the problem, Mike, because you built a business that's around you like a surgeon, really. And without the surgeon, nothing gets done. You know, no one can operate without the surgeon. She can't be like that. You've got to get people so that you can properly delegate to them. And she taught me how to delegate, which is a massive proper delegation when done properly is the real key to scalability. I think it was JC Penney, you know, the American retailer that said um, the, the, the most seminal moment in my business career was when I realized I couldn't do it all myself. And what he meant was he had to delegate. So delegation is a big deal, which, which of course means you've got to get the right people in and organize them in the right way and empower them in the right way. So there's a big bunch of stuff around that. And she wanted, she was the one that was talking about don't, don't have any part of your business dependent upon a named individual because they could leave or get saturated or just go in the holidays for two weeks in some cases. So you have to build a business which doesn't work like that. And she also talked about, she taught me how to use management reports and proper meetings. Our sales meetings had been round robin talking shops, pointless. I mean, literally, what is the point of that, really, when, you, when it boils down to it? If you want to go and talk with them, go down the pub and have a drink and enjoy it. Don't sit in an office and do it. So she stopped that and she changed the way in which we ran the meetings and I got the data. She said, should be able to run your business from Acapulco. A lot of people don't know where Acapulco is. It's in Mexico and it's a really nice place. So in what she was saying was you, proximity management, which means that you sit with someone to manage them, which again, a lot of small businesses are proximity managed, is really bad for scale. You cannot proximity manage. You have to be able to know what's going on in your business from distance. You don't have to be distanced. It can be integral part of your business if you want. You have to be able to manage it from, from a distance. And she, she was very good, I think. She was very good for us. She mainly changed, I think, my attitude to scale. It's no longer the Mike Ames business. And then I went the other way and promoted everybody else and, and, and got everybody, you know, the people that, that worked for me then. So one of them is a business called Jumar Solutions. So she, Wendy Merricks, worked for me in that team. Rob Malaban, the MD of Crimson, he worked for me at that team. Ex-production director from there, Simon Shave. It was a really talented team and I let them go really. And you'd be amazed what happens. I'll tell you, when she came into the business, I think we were doing about four and a half mil, something like that. And that was four years in, three or four years in. <clears throat> the business only lasted 10 years before I sold it. So I say it was four years. So we went from zero to four million in four years, from four million to 40 million in six years. And that's what she did. She scaled it. Wow. Blew me away. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Massive. I, I think a, a big part of almost what, what you were saying there was that almost turn from being selfish to being really collaborative. I think that it's something we've sort of briefly touched on at the, at the beginning, or when we were talking as individuals before this, is how culturally recruitment has changed. And it seems like you're very team focused, very empowering. Like how important, how important do you think that was in terms of your success? Hugely, yeah. I think, well, we were joking about this, weren't we? Because I'm not particularly collegiate with competitors. I don't have that view, really. But, um, and I know that you do, and I admire you for that, Ben. But, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I don't have that. Um, but with teams, very much so. See, as a leader, I, my job is to make the people that work for me fabulous at what they do. Yeah. No, not just getting them through it to hit their targets. No, fabulous at what they do and to make them happy. And that means different things to different people, which means I have to have an individual relationship to understand <clears throat> what makes you happy. It also means that 
part of that making them fabulous means they're on a journey and I'm with them on that journey. Now, one of the things I really hate in modern recruitment is KPIs. Bloody hate them, right? I see the sense in them. And when used properly, they're awesome. If you use them as, a, as a, an aid to personal development for your team, then yeah, totes down with that because a KPI would tell me what's wrong with you and working together, we can fix it. If I'm just going to stand up at the end of the month and say, you haven't made enough calls. If you don't try hard, I'm sacking you. I'm sure people don't say that. Maybe they do. I don't know. But then that's not using it in the right way because all people will do is make more phone calls. They won't be any better quality phone calls. They just make a lot of phone calls, really. So, so that's not the point. Whatever you measure is what you improve. And, and the opposite end of the spectrum, which always amazes me, so many agencies talk about quality. You see it on their websites and they talk about quality of service and quality of people, quality of this, quality of that. But then when you say, well, how do you measure it and reward it? It's like, nah, it's just, you know, it's a tyranny of the targets. Uh, Month-end warriors get the commission. No one cares about quality because they're not rewarded, measured, or in any way, shape, or form uh, trained in it. And, and again, you, whatever you measure and whatever you reward on, that's how you shape your business. So we didn't really pay very – I don't even think we paid a commission scheme at all at the end. We had some sort of convoluted bonus scheme that we paid, I think. I can't remember now. long time ago. We gave shares away. I mean, I wrote checks for three million pounds from the first sale mm. to the staff. And I was delighted to do that, by the way, because our turnover of staff was less than 3% a year. And to create a great business, keep the team together, you know, got to let people go if they're not fitting in, fair enough, but keep the team together that you want, because they'll do some great work for you. Mm. Um, and I think that is an important aspect, again, of scalability is to get that stable team, very happy, rewarded well, got a direction they want to go in. And you know what? You, 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 I think it's harder to fail than succeed. <laughs> I, I think, Mike, I, I, I've loved everything you've said so far. This has been such a, an enjoyable episode for myself, just because I, I'm that type of person who is wanting to scale a recruitment business. And I think you've hit so many nails on heads. I mean, obviously, the, the recruitment industry is a, a massively competitive culture. Like, how do you think? I, if, if you were speaking to a trainee coming in to, to the marketplace now, uh, midst of COVID still, recession in a way, what advice would you give them to have long-term success? Oh, yeah, chase, chase uh, relationships, not revenue, yeah. for sure. Because, yeah, for sure. Because, again, the, the, the problem with these commission schemes, all it does is focus people in on a very short-term, end-of-the-month window, yeah. pretty much it. So if, I, if you worked for me and I said, right, Ben, I need you to go and build some relationships because I know with high-value clients, the high-value clients are the ones where the requirements come to you. That's a little different for you having to go and to get them, right? So, but they're harder to get. They're very hotly contested. They're well-protected. The decision-makers are. They probably have a list of people they use. They don't want to use you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a real tough one. You're not going to cold call them and get those guys, right? So, and you're going to say, that's great, Mike. I, I can do that. And I said, of course, you've got to hit the end of the target. Oh, and do you know what? I've put an accelerator in. Awesome. So if you smash it, you're going to get even more money. How much of your time, seriously, are you going to spend building those long-term relationships that are going to pay 9, 12, 18 months? And how much are you going to spend putting a bum on a seat by the end of the month? Because I'll tell you, in 90% of the time, maybe more, people will do the end of the month because it's how they get paid and it's how they keep their job. Now, in a business, you're going to need people that do that. Right. But if you compare, say, how things are now and how they were back in the day, I was targeted on an end of the month figure. Right. That was quite aggressive. So, yeah, no difference there. 
my boss wasn't though he was targeted in a different way he he was targeted first of all on on the results of the team obviously but he took a long a lot longer term view and i copied him so he would think nothing about targeting someone for 18 months two years sometimes to get it but when he was in then the good times roll because the requirements come to you. You're not chasing them all the time. And I think business developers been translated in the modern world to go in and get in requirements, feed off that requirement, then go and get another one. Well, I'm telling you now, you're not going to scale your business if you do that. Bloody hell, that's hard work. Go and get the highest value client that you possibly can. Become their number one choice supplier, their number one agency, which is, I think, the single mission of every recruitment company, if you ask me, be the first choice, changes everything if you are. And then the business will come to you. And I could tell you, you know, when we ran Seven Trent for a time, long time actually, in Birmingham, and, um, and we would often get people ring up and say, Mike, you know, I'm gonna need another 15 people. Can you come over and talk to us about it? Okay, I suppose <laughs> I will, really. Well, you know, the little, littler out, small, littler? I just said littler. <laughs> Don't, don't let my mom, she's 92, but don't let her listen to this podcast, for goodness sake. <laughs> she'll have a, Michael, you use little. But the, the point is, is that the, in the smaller outfits, it can still be high value. High volume isn't necessarily high value. Yeah. In fact, these days, high volume isn't going to be high value. You have to work too hard for it. But I think there are a range of companies out there that will allow you to build a relationship with them that they value. They will pay for that privilege and they will give you their work. They're not four enough trees they're not all over the place but they're there and you can get them if you just chase the revenue at the end of the month you almost certainly won't and you'll be chasing revenue for the rest of your career yeah. I, I think what you said is again like, it's funny when you said to me earlier about taking snippets of uh, of, of the video in terms of creating little 30 seconders <laughs> chase relationships that revenue is definitely going to be one i think that's because yeah. it is so true like if i look at the best people that I've trained over the last five years, they focused on building really solid relationships. They were the people that spent hours on the phone to candidates and clients to ensure that, and obviously building a personal relationship as well as adding value and learning about that industry so that those people consistently come to them. I mean, you know, obviously you, you've said about like high value clients and I know it's a thing that you specialize in. What, what would you say within in recruitment terms is a, a high value client? I can define that for you actually, yes. <clears throat> um, it, it is gonna vary slightly depending on what you sell and how you sell it and who you sell it to, of course. But broadly speaking, it's someone that recognizes the value of relationships because you have to have someone that realizes that having a strong relationship with a supplier is a good thing and doesn't want to beat up on them all the time or wants to take money wherever they possibly can. So that's a really key thing. I think there has to be a relatively steady stream of revenue, you know, because what's the point in spending loads of time building a relationship with, with someone and you only make a placement every two years, you know, it's not economically viable really. I think that they also have to have the kind of requirements that you can fill. I know it's a stupid thing to say, but, you know, if, especially if you're building a niche, which I think is a really good thing to do, and I've made loads of money out of niches over the years. If you build a niche, and clearly you're going to be part of a community now. As you said, you're going to learn about that community and meet people in it and connect to people 
And so it's important a high value client then would be someone who's in that community, obviously. So it's that kind of thing that dictates whether somebody will be a high value client because the acid test is if you ring them and they give you a requirement, they're almost certainly not high value because when you're a client, when someone else rings them, they'll give them the work as well. So, you know, and it's okay. I'm okay with cold calling. I did it for the first three months of my career, but I haven't done it since the early nineties really, because I know it's, bloody hard work really and it's not the way to grow a business i don't think personally but a lot of people disagree with that and that's okay but i don't think it is i think it comes down to building solid relationships and the phone is a means to do that it was actually really funny i was pulled into an office once because a a senior manager wanted to say this person's on their phone all the time and i went and got that consultant's phone and said here's that whatsapp client candidate candidate client candidate candidate and basically he was just building relationships over whatsapp and getting real real information that's the thing i like about the modern world though if i'd have had social media and email in the 90s i i would have had a 400 million pound company (laughs) let alone 40 million quid i mean dear god does it get any better than this really for building relationships and i'm all in favor of the phone absolutely i'm in favor less in favor of email but a little bit social media massive fan of social media so but i think there's a difference between i ring someone cold yeah i ring someone who's expecting that call for whatever reason massive difference and you can get more percentage or more likely to get a high value client in the latter of those two than you are in the former having said that i know everybody has stories of a cold call that they've made that's turned into a massive client yeah i know it happens but i'm saying statistically it's it's harder to do that yeah. and i wouldn't base my business growth uh, strategy on it personally i don't think that's a very good thing to do uh, another thing just on this while we're at it you know we we were talking about this the other day. I was talking with some one of the old boys from the old days, and we spent more per head on contractor entertainment than we did client entertainment. So per head, we we would take them out every six weeks for lunch. Every three months, there'd be a lash up down the pub with loads of them. Um, we had a Christmas party. The last Christmas party I went to, I think there were over 400 contractors there and their wives, and we paid for that. Right. So the clients used to get lunch every now and again. But the reason that we did that was that they were our single biggest source of new contractors, quality new contractors, and our second biggest source of new clients. So and and I think, again, it's relationships. You know, they were not just a source of revenue. They were a person who wants to be made to feel special, appreciated, trusted and understood, which are the basic human emotions. So that and if you treat them in that way, they like you. And since the agency world is full of, let's be honest, shysters, if you're a decent person and you treat people like a human being, you're going to stand out a million miles, really. And who are they going to turn to when they want some help or assistance or they want to go somewhere and they want someone to represent them? It's going to be you. You know, it's not rocket science, really. Yeah. I, again, Mike, I'm loving this. I, I fully agree. And it, it massively resonates with, I suppose, my experiences as a, as a recruiter. Like I remember interviewing a candidate for a role, spending a lot of time prepping him and he got another job. He was a decision maker and he called me, not the agency that placed him because the agency that placed him spent five minutes on the phone. Oh, for sure. You know, I I mean, we talked about Seven Trent earlier. Um, The the reason we got that was at the time in the very early 90s, in fact, Mike was still alive, so it had been 1990, 
um, they were run by the company that we used to work at, yeah. where we'd both come from, SR in, in Coventry. They ran the site pretty much. They, got, they were the biggest supplier on site. It was a fixed-term preferred supplier list. We couldn't get in. And then they wanted uh, a girl. Her name was Elaine Lloydell, I remember. They wanted – she was a contractor. They wanted her to go back to work on a project she'd worked on before. She was outside of an exclusion zone, so she'd go back if she liked. And she said, I want to go back through software knowledge. And um, Seven Trent didn't want her to go back through us because I didn't really get on with the resource manager. I didn't like him, actually, either. And, um, and, and Systems Resources, our previous – the company definitely didn't want us in there for sure. They offered they offered to pay her all the fee, no margin at all. She still wouldn't take it. She said, I'm going back through, well, Mike was dead by then. So I'm going back through Mike Ames. I'm not going at all. Mm. And in the end, we went back, roll forward only three years. We are the second biggest supplier on site. And we're not even on the supply list. Not even on the supply list. Then they put us on the supply list when when they reviewed reviewed it and then we became the top supplier and then they outsourced all of their recruitment to us in the mid 90s i think it was so all of that came because of the loyalty of one contractor that said no i'm not going back through through them i'm going back through my games and that's what you're looking to achieve that kind of loyalty that kind of i'll put myself out for you because i know you treat me like a person not just as a source of revenue that's again what builds empires it's it's getting other people to do the work for you not you doing it yourself yeah, definitely, definitely. Like again, like I, I'm loving this. Like I think you, you've given so many sort of truthful hints, and I think this is one of the things that I was we we spoke about briefly beforehand. And I almost wanted to touch upon this. Success sounds very easy. Like obviously, as a going into the recruitment industry, you can go and read, and here you're going to earn six figures in your first or second year, and all of that what challenges come with success? Because obviously you, you've mentioned as well about the, the <clears throat> and things like that. Okay, well, when, when I work with companies um, and it, I work with other businesses, not just recruitment as well, and yeah. I'd say the same thing to them, right? There's five things you're going to get from your company and you have to decide what those five things are and how much you're prepared to sacrifice to get them. So the first one is income yeah. because income gives you a lifestyle, basically. The second one is um, job satisfaction because job satisfaction uh, clearly is, you know, going to work every day, you like it or you don't like it, do stuff you like. The third one is work-life balance, how much you work and how much you don't work. The fourth one is financial independence. And the fifth one is legacy, which doesn't apply to everybody. But you want to leave a legacy or stand back and say, I did that, yeah. which again, some people don't really care about. So first thing to do is understand the answers to those five questions for you. Because <clears throat> when you do that, it's going to tell you certain things. So if you want a reasonable amount of money when you're financially secure, then quite frankly, if you run a business for 10 years and are profitable and take the money out every year and buy property or stocks or shares, almost certainly you'll be pretty close to being financially independent without having to sell your business. Yeah. It's called a cash cow business. I'm all in favor of growing cash cow businesses for people because did you know that only 0.2% of recruitment companies ever get sold in a private sale for any amount of money? Right. Mostly, I mean, you can give them away and you can sell them for two bob and a conquer, or you can do a little MBO for your team. You can do all of that. But I'm talking retiring money, 0.2%. That's some research that Rycroft Lenton did. Right now, that isn't very many. If you're a betting man, would you go on a <clears throat> whatever it is, one in 200s or 500s? I can't even work it out now. Um, chance. Well, you wouldn't, would you? You wouldn't because that's not going to happen, really. So you, you would go for something more secure and growing a cash cow 
is I think going to give you that success. It's an easier life for a start. You don't have to worry about putting a load of stuff into your business to make it into a mini Michael page. It's, I think people like working for those companies better. No one likes work. I'm not going to say no one likes working for Michael Page because they might sue me, but you know what I mean? That big agency, who, who likes working there? It's horrible, yeah. really. Right? So, and, and also, you, you're going to earn more money as well, strangely enough. And each year, you become a little bit more financially independent. Each year, because you put a little bit more in your personal investment portfolio, whatever that is for you. Now, personally, that's what I class as success. To be able to do that and build a business which gives you that kind of lifestyle and everybody else around you. And at the end of it, you've still got a business you can sell because weirdly, if you grow that kind of business, it will be profitable. It's yeah. a with profits business. And if it's profitable, somebody will buy it from you. You know, even if it's only selling it to the management team that you've built around you and taking the money over a three year period so it doesn't cost them anything. Whatever the exit strategy you've got, you'll do okay. But that just means you can buy a slightly better villa in, in Florida. That's all that means. Yeah. It's not your future life is not contingent on selling that business now. You know, it, it, you need to do what you need to do. But I'm telling you, statistically, I wouldn't grow uh, a, a business for sale again. Yeah. You'd more focus on building something that matches the lifestyle aims that you have. And money as well. Financial yeah. independence is a big one because yeah. people don't think it through. There's an assumption. I bet, I, I bet a lot of your listeners are assuming that they will one day sell their recruitment business. Yeah. Well, there's a formula for that. I can't remember it in detail, but things like it's got to really be contract business or if it's perm it's got to be big and it's got to be psi um, psl driven yeah. so that a potential buyer can see a future revenue stream that's why would you buy it really it's got to have a good mix of clients in the client estate not too many big ones not too many small ones um it's a whole bunch of things really that's why there are so few businesses that fall into that category most of them aren't you know we talked about this earlier didn't we the data it's, it's out of date now and i'm not sure what it would be but last time i i looked this is from the talent uh, outfit i think they said the market was worth 48 billion pounds in this country mm. the top five companies account for just over seven billion of that the hundred top hundred i think account for 24 billion the next 850 account for i think it's 10 billion and then everybody else which is 39,000 recruitment companies account for 14 billion pounds which if you do the maths is that about 350k statistically it's not going to happen don't do that grow a with profits cash cow business become wealthy is my advice fantastic i mean i think mike that that gives us a really nice concluding point more so than anything else i think this conversation has been so value driven i've been really enjoying it and um, one any final thoughts that you'd like to, to add for the listeners there mike yeah learn how to use content content is where it's at now really good quality content because if people aren't looking to hire for, because they've got suppliers in place or because they haven't got a need or whatever reason or you could just can't get to speak to them if you get the right content you'll get their attention yeah. and then if you get the right attention you stand a chance of turning that attention into interest if you get the interest you can turn it into a desire for some of them some of those people will become clients learn how to construct and use good quality content it makes a massive difference again mate, you, you really are all about dropping the, the value bombs I'm, I'm a big believer in good content i think that's probably the biggest thing that i've seen change in the time that i've been in recruitment 
why I do a podcast. Well, you do. I was about to say this is great content. You know, not me. That sounded a bit ponted, and I didn't mean that. But I've, I've I've listened to this. I've listened to that last show you did, and this is great content. So yeah, you're doing the right thing. But I I think it's interesting because last year, um, LinkedIn reported a sixty percent increase in in content being posted on their site. Sixty percent. So unless you're cock on, you're just going to be a whisper in the hurricane. Yeah. Your content has to stand out and it has to add real value. Then it will turn heads. Then you can start the relationship building process. If you don't do that, you are just noise. Definitely. So, so Mike, do you want to finish telling, off, uh, telling us a little bit more about what you do within your business and how people can get hold of you? Okay. Well, the best thing to do is to invite me to connect on LinkedIn. Yeah. That's just an easy thing to do. Um, three things. I'll be very quick. We run an online portal called the Recruitment Pioneers. It's free. All our good stuff is on there. You just register and you get access to white papers, eBooks, all our webinars, everything. It's all on there. You can just have it. And we don't upsell. We don't hassle you or anything. New content released every month. So that's the recruitmentpioneers.com. To work with me directly, you can either come to one of our growth clubs, which is 75 quid a month. You join a club with me in it. Very small, no competition. People really open up. And it's all about use out of the box stuff. Take it and use it. It's about answering people's questions and us bringing in new stuff all the time. And then as a private client, I only work on three projects as a private client. High value new clients, how to win them, how to become first choice supplier, supplier, uh, which is extreme client care, really, and uh, scalability. How do you scale your business? Get yourself out of it, basically. That's it. Fantastic. And uh, look, everyone, I would certainly recommend following Mike. I've really enjoyed this podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. And thank you so much for, for listening. Thank you very much for inviting me along. Thank you, Mike.